Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. I will see you boys later. Where you going? To ask her out. No, no, you're not playing the game. What game? She goes to these lengths to entice you, and your only response is, gee, I really like your picture. Would you like to go out on a date with me, please? No good? George, it's the timeless art of seduction. You gotta join in the dance. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madcap. I'm David Ross. And I'm Daniel Bloom. Mr. Bloom, what do we have on the platter today? We, I feel like we have a very fun and uh, very amazing show today. It's going to be one of the greatest madcaps ever, goddammit. Absolutely. Who's our, who's our first guest? Today, we will be speaking with a Montreal native, the thinking man's crooner. A Montreal legend. David Maklovich. Yes. Better known as... Dave from Chromio. Chromio is an electro-funk duo from Montreal comprised of Dave One and P. Thug, whose ballads are the perfect soundtrack for the art of seduction. If you haven't already heard the song playing in the background somewhere, prepare to hear it absolutely everywhere. It's the lead single from Chromio's new album, White Women, and it's an early contender for Song of the Summer. This is Jealous, I Ain't With It. I get up from a love band. I wish she'd care to see, but she only cares when she's got the time. And I fret so much about her loving, I wish she'd let me be, but her destiny's got us intertwined. And is it really my fault? I get a shiver when I see her with those other guys. Wearing the jacket I bought, I can't help but lose my temper and I don't know why. I get jealous, but I'm We're at Sweet Life Festival. Sweet Life Festival? Merryweather Post Pavilion. Describe the ambiance. Um, it's real green. <laughs> it's real, you know, definitely like kale and quinoa vibes. You know, it's real, it's real vegan, real tofu everywhere. Earth tones. Earth to- yeah, 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 yeah. You might say. It's real organic. I've actually seen uh, you guys perform at this venue before. I believe it was a virgin That's right. festival. That's right. Back in 2011. I decided to not let this play with my mind But when the boys from out of town, they come back around I feel like committing a crime, yeah I get jealous, but I'm too cool to admit it When the fellas talk to my girl, I ain't with it I get jealous 2010 Off in the woods? Yep That was a nice vibe as well Yeah, it was cool I want to uh, talk about your, your background, you know what I'm where you grew up and stuff like that. I read okay. that you grew up in a Haitian community in Montreal. Um, I, I don't know. We had a lot of Haitian friends. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the, the thing about Montreal, because it's French-speaking, you get a lot of French-speaking immigrants. Mm-hmm. So, like, my mom is from Morocco, came to Montreal because she spoke French. P is from Lebanon came from Montreal because they speak French over there. And a lot of people came from Haiti, of course, because mm-hmm. of the French language. So, yeah, a lot a lot of our friends growing up were Haitian kids. 
let's talk about some of those amazing Haitian sounds that you that they were playing. Oh, you mean like compa and all that? Yeah. Are yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, you guys into that? Yeah, sweet Mickey and all that. Original. was like the Friday night dances you know what I mean like I mean I felt a little um, white in there sometimes but <laughs> but yeah I mean shout to you know all my Montreal peoples just uh, Haitian or not but you know it's it's definitely um that was a part of us growing up you know and we, we were hip-hop kids so that was like our teenage years really have you ever considered writing or singing a song in French we did one song in French on the last album like a French ballad. Maintenant je t'écris d'une chambre d'hôtel. Il est mon passé, pas de nouvelles. Mais j'ai jamais arrêté de penser à tes cheveux sur l'oreiller. Quand je me suis levé et j'ai claqué la porte. Et si jamais un bon vent nous ramène. But it just has to really come, like, you can't force it, you know. I was always bilingual, and, and the music that I listened to, which sort of influences what Chromio became, it was always sung in English, so if I get another idea, I'll do it, you know. Let's talk about some of those influences. Cool. Like I said, we're hip hop kids. So I guess it all started with us um, discovering what original artists were being sampled. I don't know how we got into that. We just were nerds, I guess. But, you know, we're teenagers and we're listening to like EPMD and stuff. You got the chill, 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 chill. <laughs> Your mind, let your conscience be free and get down to the sounds of EPMD. But you should keep quiet while the MC rap. But if you're tired, then go take a nap. And then later on, to you know, a lot of West Coast stuff. And then it always just came back to like George Clinton. Whoa! They say the bigger the headache, the bigger the pill, baby. Uh, call me the big pill. Dr. Funkenstein, the disco theme with the monster sound, the cool goo with the bump transplant. Hip bone connected to my thigh bone, my thigh bone connected to my leg bone, my leg bone connected to my ankle bone. I get so hung up on bones. Oh, Dr. Funkenstein here. 
preoccupied and dedicated to the preservation of the motion of the hips. We love you, punk, you fucking sky. Your punk is the best. Talk! Take my body, give it the mind to the punk with the rest. Kiss me on my ego. Funk music. Zap. For those who are unaware, Zap is a funk band formed by four brothers from Ohio, and they were heavy users of the talk box, which is a sound P Thug loves to serenade the crowd with. Zap used it in slow and amazing jams such as I Wanna Be Your Man, and they also used it in Computer Love. I don't know why it kind of hit us, but as kids, we, we started listening to the originals. I, I can't tell you why, but when we started listening to the originals, you know, and just sort of like, you know, Rapper's Delight and then going back to Chic. just doing that our homework and keep in mind this is like before the internet you know what i mean like i was 15 this is like a 95 or whatever that was our thing there was like our secret because nobody else in school knew that you know so we were the kids who knew that and so that's how we discovered the music that you know years later went on to influence chromio because we were just digging in the crates Here's a song from Chromio's album, White Women, that Sheik would be proud of. It's titled, Something Good. kids and I was making beats back then and at one point I got just tired of sampling records and I wanted to create my own music and P and I sort of got involved together I was like man let me start a band with my best friend you know and 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 P had a bunch of synthesizers and he loved playing the talk box from California Love to DJ Quick and all that that was all records for him that were huge Pause. Have you ever played DJ Quick on the show? 
Not that I know of. This is Dollars and Cents. Because I'm down with the trees. I'm down with death row. I'm down with black tone and I'm down with the flow. So when we cross paths and I hope that soon, I'm going to boot your motherfucking ass to the moon. You need to quit banging under false pretense. Because if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. So don't kill game, let the pivot commence. As a kid, I remember like watching Robert Palmer and I always loved like those 80s crooner types, you know what I mean? Robert Palmer. Yeah. Okay. Slept slept on genius. Okay. So underrated. We've never talked about this on the show before, but when I was growing up, me and my mom used to listen to Robert Palmer on the answering machine. We didn't even have a tape player. Nice. It was like one long message. Hit that joint. So ill. What was his best record? Addicted to Love, Simply Irresistible. That whole album. Yeah. Heavy Nova. Heavy Nova. First first cassette I ever bought with my own money. That one? Yep. In, th- in third grade. I'm far too busy loving her. Loving once, it's all, I mean, deep cuts. Yeah, deep cuts. I mean, ill though. And then he had that group, uh, Power Station, with members of Duran Duran and uh, some like it's hot. This is Madcap, and you're listening to our interview with David Maklovich, also known as Dave One, from the musical powerhouse Chromio. I mean, he was just ill. He's a slept on, you know, totally unsung genius. A little bit like Holland Oates were when we started name checking them. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're like, you know, spinning and pitchfork or writing about him. But we were name checking them when people are just making fun of their mullets. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Before it got trendy. So anyhow, our whole thing with Chromio is, is you know, we, we kind of started with that kind of music. And then, of course, we took cues from modern electronic music and you know just as daft punk and and whatever else and kind of blended it all together and i think in many ways the the hip-hop attitude and, and spirit is still there just that kind of irreverence and the flashiness that we have 
and then at the same time you know a lot of our artwork is more like classic rock inspired you know so if you look at our logo it looks like a sticks or a chicago record you know what i'm saying so we just kind of dialogue with all these different eras and it all started really by being nerdy kids in high school who used kind of rap music as a gateway to discover all this other kind of music this is old 45s from chromio's new album white women dudes will step to you with a corner line asking for your name saying what's your sign you turn around like boy quick talking to me yeah. he could pick you up in a limousine Hall and Oates. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a bitch girl but it's gone too far cause you know it don't matter anyway. Say money, money won't get you too far. Get you I'm very far. proud of Hall and Oates because they are graduates of my university. Nice. Temple University, Philadelphia, Philly. Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Big up. now pass the mic to my right. Because David Ross loves him some Hall & Oates. Man, growing up as a kid, I thought Hall & Oates were black. Yeah. Because I hear, I would hear Sarah smile on the radio, and then when I was, I was like, "Whoa, these are they're mighty pale." You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were some of the first uh, white artists to get played. Well, first of all, this is the crazy part: is American radio still had like black stations and white stations, which mm-hmm. is that's just the craziest thing ever to me. Still, y'all never y'all never had that ever. Did y'all did Canada ever have it? No, but okay. I mean, just that concept. Is yeah, ridiculous. Now they call it urban, you know. Um, <laughs> And Sarah Smile was one of the first records to get played on those stations. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, to the sounds of Daryl Hall's blackness. 
when I feel cold you warm me and when I feel I can't go on you come and hold me it's you and me forever Daryl Hall is an absolute, absolute genius, and we were fortunate enough to meet him and to hang out with him and to play with him, jam with him. I've seen that, the live at Daryl's house. It's yeah. a really cool session. I mean, we're homeboys with him, you know what I mean? Like, if, if he comes to town, I'll come see him, we'll chop it up. And he's just, he's one of those dudes that had to wait for years and years and years before getting his credit, you know, and now he's got it. proud to consider him as a friend and, and as a mentor. Here's a song that clearly shows the influence of Hall & Oates on Chromio's sound. This is The Right Type. You take a look at the time and see how much longer you can lay. And you finally step outside but everything is so blue and gray. It sucks when it don't might be time to move on When he's gone Believe me, he's gone But it won't last forever Somebody will promise to be The right type Acting shining armor Review it says uh, every great artist secretly performs for an audience of one, mm. right? So, like, who's the one person that you constantly just keep it in your mind as you evolve that you want to impress oh, besides wow. self? Besides self, that's such a good that's such a good way to say it. You know, it's funny because sometimes it's not even your friend, sometimes it's actually kind of a frenemy, you know what I mean? Like, that you want to, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, you know what I'm gonna say, and like, nobody, like, I don't say this usually, it's not one, but like, when. I moved to Paris in 2007 to work on fancy footwork, well, to work on school stuff, but eventually I did fancy footwork over there, and P came and joined me and all that, and um, we were tight with, like, all the Ed Banger dudes, and um, their stuff was just so on point, you know, and it's so inspiring, and I mean, again, we, we were playing shows with them and, and, and toured with them and became really friends with them. I mean, DJ Medi, you know, rest in peace, was a really... 
um, influential part of the band. Yeah. 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 This is I Am Somebody by the late DJ Medi featuring Chromio, released on Ed Banger Records in 2006. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me pick you up when you fall. See, there's really no problem at all. Let me be that person you call when there's someone you should know. I can tell that you're looking at me. Watching so curiously. You don't want to check my ID, cause you know I'm somebody. Standing there, I watch and hope to get across that velvet rope. So I look at the guy on the other side And his only answer is no And I'm scoring high and I'm scoring low But you can't say I don't try But at the end of the night I get shut down By somebody else Cause I I guess for a long time in the back of my mind I was like you know we got to keep our stuff as tight as theirs and I mean to this day when we're working on our new life show which you're gonna see tonight is like a new you know I, I use Justice's show as as a good kind of benchmark you know and and even though our music is very different and we sing and it's more you know there's groovier more soulful stuff I just felt like always on a for their taste level they were always they set the bar so high <laughs> Do we have time to talk about 18th century French literature? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a long time. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Would you do Voltaire or Russo? Which one do you like more? I mean, they're both kind of herbs in their own way, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> I don't really like either, to be honest, but I guess... You're a fan of Confessions? I'll put Russo. Confessions is ill because it's like one of the first part, was one of the first works in literature. Well, first of all, it's like one of the first autobiographies, if not the first in early modern literature but there's an incredible part where he talks about how his babysitter spanked him and how he liked it you know <laughs> and it's just such a classic so we followed up and in true madcap style we found that part of the book confessions to read the passage we've employed the powerful voice of paris-born paul a.r scato de pompeo who also is a howard university french professor here in washington dc the passage he'll be reading is Rousseau's response to being spanked by his babysitter. He's first going to read it in French. Qui croirait que ce châtiment d'enfant, reçu à 8 ans par la main d'une fille de 30, a décidé de mes goûts, de mes désirs, de mes passions, de moi pour le reste de ma vie, et cela précisément dans le sens contraire à ce qui devait s'en suivre naturellement En même temps que mes sens furent allumés, mes désirs prirent si bien le change que, Bornés à ce que j'avais éprouvé, ils ne s'avisèrent point de chercher autre chose. Avec un sang brûlant de sensualité presque dès ma naissance, je me conservais pur de toute souillure jusqu'à l'âge où les tempéraments les plus froids et les plus tardifs se développent. Tourmenté longtemps sans savoir de quoi, je dévorais d'un œil ardent les belles personnes. Mon imagination me les rappelait sans cesse, uniquement pour les mettre en œuvre à ma mode et en faire autant de demoiselles Lambertier. Now in the Queen's English.
Who would believe this childish discipline, received at 8 years old from the hands of a woman of 30, should influence my propensities, my desires, my passions for the rest of my life, and that in quite a contrary sense from what might naturally have been expected? The very incident that inflamed my senses gave my desires such an extraordinary turn that, confined to what I already experienced, I sought no further, and with blood boiling with sensuality, almost from my birth preserved my purity beyond the edge when the coldest constitution lose their insensibility. Long tormented without knowing by what, I guessed on every handsome woman with delight. Imagination incessantly brought their charms to my remembrance, only to transform them into so many Miss Lambertier. Now, I would go with Russo, but like he's Russo was very much like emo and kind of annoyingly emo, and Voltaire was very much establishment and almost like a bully, you know. And then he would he bullied Russo, so whatever. I mean, it's a long story, but yeah, at least we got a funny anecdote out of there. We did. Your album, White Women, is about to drop. Yeah. People have been psyched for this album for years. I hope so. Are you excited to unleash it on the public? Well, it's been unleashed because of the iTunes stream. Uh, so it's been a few days of real excitement and like sort of compulsively reading Twitter comments to see what people's favorite songs are. I can't wait to have like a little digital diet and just not look at my phone for a few days. Actually, there's no signal here, which is totally great. <laughs> but yeah, we're excited about it. It's been a long time coming. What's your favorite song on their new record? My favorite song on the new record is Lost On Way Home featuring Solange. Thank you so much for no, taking thank you the time. Guys. Great question. Really appreciate yeah. it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Best of luck, man. Madcap offers our most profuse thanks to David Maklovich for taking time before his performance to speak with us. We also must thank Meriwether Post Pavilion. We would also like to thank Dana, Eric, Ken, Kelsey, Mikey, and Rich for helping to arrange this interview. Special thanks also to Paul A.R. Scotto de Pompeo for lending us his dulcet tones. And last but not least, thank you to my Aunt Nita Ba for tolerating me and embracing my endeavors and also for schooling me on 18th century French lit. We had much of everything The Dutch was everything Went Dutch on everything But got lost on the way home We had much of everything Dutch was everything With Dutch on everything I got lost on the way home 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 Yeah, 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 yeah
information on Chromio, to hear more music, buy merch, and find them on social media, visit Chromio.net. This is Madcap, and our next guest is a writer. But not just any writer. He's a writer for an original series on Netflix that has certainly made the ground crack for its boldness, darkness, and sadly accurate portrayal of many of the sociopathic and despotic politicians that we have roaming our hometown of Washington, D.C., a.k.a. Chocolate City. Here's a scene from that show. If you need a punching bag, I will stand here and take the punches, as I have done time and time again since I swore my oath. But I would much rather get back to work. All right, for those who live under a rock and are unaware of that voice, that is the voice of Kevin Spacey, also known as Frank Underwood, on the Emmy Award-winning series House of Cards, an uncompromising exploration of power, ambition, and the American way. Bo Willimon is the creator and showrunner of the American version of House of Cards. Bill Kennedy is a writer for the show and was kind enough to take the time out of his busy day to do an interview with us from the writer's room of House of Cards via Google Hangout. The inner sanctum, David. We're in. Short anecdote, I first met Billy a few years back when visiting a friend in L.A. and ended up on an impromptu trip to Vegas where four of us piled into Billy's blue Mini Cooper. I realize this is a bit selfish, but for those of you who are packed in that car with me, if you're listening, this next minute is for you. a man to do oh baby Baby. I'll sacrifice for you I'll even do wrong for you oh baby every minute every hour I'm gonna shower you with love and affection look at us coming in your direction Now for something completely different. state your name for the people uh this is bill kennedy yes yes and what is it you do for a living bill kennedy i am a writer on house of cards and and i also write movies and other things when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer bill i was in middle school or i was sorry i was in high school uh i got a summer job working at a law firm because i don't know why when i was like 15 i thought maybe i wanted to be a lawyer and this like young guy who was working in the mailroom with me who was like 25 and I thought he was the coolest person on the planet pulled me aside and he was like do you really I mean do you think that these people are really all that happy and uh, the answer was no so I I started thinking about what I would want to do and I always loved movies I mean that was like my whole jam every weekend was sneaking into R-rated movies for as long as I can remember so what, what was uh, the first R-rated film you snuck yourself into do you remember that? Uh, 
I believe it was Double Jeopardy, which was like an Ashley Judd thriller, <laughs> yes. like back in the day. You're not very good at keeping promises, Nick. Gonna do something? What are you talking to me for? She's the one with the gun. They're tough in Louisiana, Libby. You shoot me, they'll give you the gas chamber. No, they won't. It's called double jeopardy. I learned a few things in prison, Nick. I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi Gras and they can't touch me. As an ex-law professor, I can assure you she is right. I don't. I honestly don't really remember the movie. I remember the thrill of sneaking into it. What were some of your favorite movies growing up, Bill? You know, I always loved the movie Stand By Me. Um, just like really spoke to me when I was a kid. That summer at home, I had become the invisible boy. Mom! It's in Denny's room. Oh. In April, my older brother Dennis had been killed in a Jeep accident. Four months had passed, but my parents still hadn't been able to put the pieces back together again. Uh, you know, I grew up, I, love, I was like a total action movie junkie when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, but like the first movie, like watching like a Goodfellas and The Godfather, were the movies that like made me realize what movies could be. So I was always like, I was always a big mob movie guy too. Do you have a favorite scene from either one of those classic titles? You know, one of my favorite scenes of all time is in Goodfellas, Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta sitting down in the middle of the night eating dinner with Joe Pesci's mom and they got a body in the trunk and they had to go <laughs> chop that body up right afterwards. And they're just like sitting there eating this lasagna. And, and Joe Pesci is like, hey, mom, like show them that painting you just got. And the mother brings out this painting and it's like a picture of a guy in a boat with a dog. And Joe Pesci's like, I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. Well, one is going east and the other one is going west. So what? And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? Guy's got a nice head of white hair. Look how beautiful with the dog. It looks the same. Looks like somebody we know. (laughs) That scene is all about Ray Liotta feeling guilty. You know, it's all about the subtext Mm. of like what Ray Liotta is thinking. On paper, the scene is a discussion of like a dog in a painting. (laughs) It's like an elderly woman in a kitchen eating lasagna in the middle of the night. It was good ass lasagna. I believe it. (laughs) It was good ass lasagna. All right, Bill. So, um, Describe the writer's room there. Tell us tell us how you all craft the story. And you're in the writer's room as we speak to you, yes, correct? Yes, he is. That, is. that is correct. I'm in the writer's room. There's around five or six writers on the show. My boss is a gentleman named Bo Williman. He is our fearless showrunner. Um, he is a god to me. Sorry, continue. Yeah, he's, don't worry, he's a god to me, too. <laughs> Hail to the chief. <laughs> Bo really sort of spearheads the direction of the creative direction of the show at the top of the season. He usually has a lot of ideas about where he wants to go, different thematic things he's interested in exploring. You know, it's a very collaborative process. It's the five of us sitting around a table pitching ideas. I guess there's like kind of like two phases to the room. Like the early phase is we have this giant grid and it's like on one axis is episode numbers, on the other axis is like themes or characters. And we plot out the whole season on this grid 
like what's happening with each theme and or character and how they're intersecting on this grid. Mm-hmm. And then from that grid, we have a really good blueprint of how we're going to go about writing the show. And then, you know, you break every episode based on what you've got in your grid. And of course, like you plan to death and you always end up changing things because you start writing a character and you fall in love with that character and you're like, oh God, like we need more of this guy in the show. Like he's too much fun to write. So then, of course, you end up rejiggering things. Bo is driving the conversation. He's really the driving creative force behind it. And it's us sort of collaborating with him on figuring out how to tell the best story in you know, the most exciting and suspenseful way. Where is the writer's room? Where are you located physically? We are writing the show in New York, and then we shoot it in Baltimore. And, you know, once in a while we sneak down to D.C. to pick up some exterior shots. But for the most part, it is in Baltimore, in and around the city, which is a beautiful city, and also on the soundstage. We have some sound stages there with some pretty incredible sets. How long does it take you all to write a season? From start to finish, it's like maybe it'll be eight months of writing this season. You know, but that's not counting all the prep that... Bo did personally before we even got in the room, thinking about themes and ideas and where he wanted the season to go. And, you know, there's also every year we get like a list of books. So season two, we knew that we were going to explore China. We were fascinated by China. It's like, and the political system there. So in the, in the run up to the season, you know, some of us did reading on China or, you know, we all watched this incredible documentary called The Invisible War which is about sexual assault in the military because we knew that was what was really passionate about pursuing that as a theme. So there's like, there's some prep work that goes into it before we even get in the room. But like in terms of in the room time, it's around probably around eight months. My boy Fang was a smooth operator. That must've been fun to write too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and, and uh, it's interesting because when we were writing the show, we were all sort of thinking, like, God, we are going to get, none of us is going to be able to visit China. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to hate us. But I guess, you know, what we're told is that there are a couple members of the standing committee that love the show. Yes. And they, and they, and they love that we make American politics, you know, that we show it for the dirty that it is. Uh, and so... House of Cards is actually one of the one of very few American shows in China that is not censored because <laughs> because they enjoy our depiction of of American politicians. That's a good compliment. They I like, like it, that. They like it raw. They definitely like it raw. <laughs> uh, so talk about how Bo talk about how great of a writer Bo is and how you strengthen your own writing. Bo has been massively influential in my writing because I started out on this show as his assistant, season one. And I was sort of always obnoxiously writing scenes and showing them to him. <laughs> and one thing about my own writing personally is like, I'm in love with the sound of my own voice. I don't know if you guys can tell. We're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love writing dialogue and I love writing snappy, fun, Tarantino style dialogue. And a lot of times it's like too snappy and too fun and it's not real. Hmm. And Bo has been a tremendous influence on me because when he sees me being smart in a script, 
when he sees me like showing off, he always checks me and he's like, you, you know that people don't talk this way. You're being witty right now and this is not, this scene is not about wit. It's about drama. It's like, okay, you know you want to write a scene about how Ray Liotta is nervous, but like, you don't want to write a conversation where Ray Liotta is just like, I'm so nervous. And like, Bo has been really influential in me and in figuring out how to mine the subtext for great drama, not write dialogue for dialogue's sake, and also, personally, like, I'm a very plot-driven person. I mean, you know, type, the movies that I loved growing up were, like, a lot of action movies and mob crime dramas. And our show is, I mean, obviously, like, there's a lot of plot, there's a lot of machinations, but it is, at the end of the day, all about the people. And sometimes there are, like, double reverses and crazy things that can happen in the show that, like, we he actually encourages us to tone those back sometimes so we can focus on the on the humanity of the drama and that's like that's also something I've really learned from him it's like if you have a couple if you got Frank and Claire Underwood having a real argument about their marriage that's real you know that's a lot more compelling than some really intricate backstabbing hmm. so what was the first uh, piece of dialogue that you had in the show it's episode seven. Okay, okay. The truth is, like, it's TV, television is such a collaborative process that I'm I'm sure things I pitched made it in other places. But a part of the collaboration is also owning owning the things that you write and and letting other people own their episodes. All right, so let's let's dive into uh, episode seven now. In a nutshell, what is episode seven about? Like, what is like, if you could condense it to two to three sentences? Yeah, I, well, episode seven is really all about. Francis Underwood and Stamper uncovering what's essentially a massive campaign finance money laundering scheme where a pretty prominent casino owner in Missouri and a Native American casino owner in Missouri is essentially flying in all these Chinese businessmen to lose tons of money and have wild gambling weekends so that he can then funnel that money into campaigns and buy political influence. And he's doing this at the behest of Raymond Tusk, our billionaire character, because Raymond Tusk wants to maintain appearances of being apolitical. So it's about Stamper figuring out where all this money, where all the campaign money is coming from, tracking down Xander Fang, and Francis figuring out how he can ultimately play this new information to his advantage. Uh, yo, let's let's talk. Let's talk Stamper. Now, in this episode, Doug Stamper has sex. I'm trying to figure out now. <laughs> I don't see Doug as a man who would just be getting casual sex by uh, from a waitress. Let's talk about that. Well, I mean, for one thing, there is a means to the end <laughs> for Stamper sleeping with that waitress. I mean, he is looking for information. You know, also like emotionally, where Stamper's at right now is, you know, he's kind of falling for Rachel, the young prostitute. Mm -hmm. He's obsessing over her. He's in a dark place. He's really conflicted about her. The way we played it is really interesting because he feels a personal connection with this waitress. He needs something from her, and he sleeps with her. Mm -hmm. But, like, ultimately, like, the way he's feeling when he comes out of that, you know, he's completely focused on work, but then when he gets to China and the opportunity comes up to sleep with women again... He can't do it. And I think, like, that sort of 
paradoxical inconsistency is so real and so true to life and so true to the character because the character is falling in love a little bit and feeling things that he hasn't let himself feel in a long time because he has such a one-track mind. He's so devoted to his job. He's so devoted to the service of Frank Underwood that he's always subjected his sel himself to this person. And now that this young woman is in his life, he's starting to feel he's not as much in control of his emotions. Mm -hmm. You know. All right, so um, there's another scene I want to talk about. The presidency is a great and precious thing. Loneliness is the price. Let's assume in one of these chairs, staring at this wall, is where Truman decided to drop the bomb and see if we feel anything. Nothing. You? No. <laughs> <laughs> what does that suggest? The fact that they couldn't feel anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy you brought up that scene because it's my favorite scene in the episode. And, you know, at this point in the show, Walker is in a dark place. He's going ma to massively lose out in the midterms because he's getting hammered by this new campaign money. He doesn't know where it's coming from. You know, when we're in dark places, we look for cosmic signs. You know, and when you f and more often than not, like you feel nothing, you do feel nothing, or the feeling that you have is manufactured, and you kind of know it's manufactured. For me, this is two men. You know, Walker is at his wit's end. He is looking to feel something. He is looking for this place that has such intense historical relevance to tell him something about the president that he is or the president that he could be or what presidents do in times times that test their leadership and he's feeling nothing. All right, um, Remy. I should be going, got a really mean. Okay. Do you want me to stay? I wasn't planning on sleeping here. So, uh, another one night stand then. Is that okay? Not really my thing. Come on. You must play the field. No, I don't. But <laughs> you are such a flirt. I flirt, yes. But I only sleep with someone if I'm into them. And I prefer to stick around. Remy Danton, serial monogamist. This a joke. I'm sorry. I didn't, uh... Why, do, why does Remy have to be such a wimp? <laughs> he gets hurt. I mean, he gets the sweet nectar of a white woman and he just fades. <laughs> we want to show complicated people. Our characters are never interested in the easy things. Hmm. You know, they're interested in the things that intrigue them on, on like a deeper level. What was the allotment of time that you had to write this episode? I think I had two weeks okay. to write it. You know, and then I had like a week of revisions. But, you know, the cool thing about being in a writer's room is when you go off to write your episode, you've got a really great roadmap that you've developed with your colleagues so, on how you're going to write the episode. 
I went a little crazy. I worked really high. So uh, <laughs> I had a lot of time those two weeks writing. It was not a wasn't a cakewalk by any means, but you know, you know what you're going off to write when you write it. And you also have the support of a lot of really tremendous writers and of course Bo himself, who of course I called probably too many times while I was writing my episode to ask his advice. So <laughs> Can we delve into those two weeks of craziness for a moment? What did you find inspiring in terms of the writing process? Is there a certain beverage that you like to go to, coffee or tea, or were you meditating? Were you absent? Absent? <laughs> were you listening? Were you listening to music? Were you hallucinating? What, what was your process during that time? I mean, for me, it's like I, I like to. I wake up in the morning, have a couple cups of coffee, I hammer for a little while, then usually I get to like. You know the the phase of the day where I get like tremendously anxious and I think everything I'm doing is terrible. So then I try and like take a break and like go for a jog or like you know, just walk around or like get some kind of exercise, like calm down. And then I get back into the coffee. And then when I'm really writing, I'm basically writing like 14 hours a day, but it's not like it's a lot of like pacing around. And after like 7 p.m. You know, I, I get into the beer and the whiskey. <laughs> you gotta enjoy yourself a little too. You're a writer, yeah. after all. I mean, the and there's a certain there's a certain type of writing that goes really well when you're cocktailing. Whiskey is like ink to a real writer. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it's like I said, like if I'm drinking, I can probably write like ten pages in three hours, and of those ten pages, only two are good, but at least I wrote. You know? <laughs> Wait, did we, did we talk about, is there, is there, uh, can you write with music in the background? Yeah, you know, I, I've got a really weird habit with music, which is, usually I pick one song, I just listen to that song over, I put it on repeat, that one song, and I listen to it over and over and over, I mean, just straight, so it becomes, like, it's usually a song I love, and it, it becomes very hypnotic and you sort of like you enjoy it's like I enjoy like the groove of listening to music but because it's the same song over and over and over again I, I don't th think about the lyrics or think about the bridge that's about to happen I don't like sing along it's like it becomes very hypnotic yeah um, I, d I do the same thing I listen to the house of cards theme from season one <laughs> really, really loud on repeat a few times before I have sex. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's crucial. Impotence every time. It's crucial. Okay. To my, it's, it's right now, like right now, to yesterday and this week, that song for me is the first cut is the deepest, the P.P. P. Arnold version. <laughs> I would have given you all of my heart, but there's someone who's torn it apart, and he's taken almost all that I've got. But if you wanna try to love us, I've been listening to that over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds so weird. It's like the weirdest song to write to, but like I've been listening, like I probably listened to. PP Arnold has made like 200 bucks on Spotify off of me in the last four days. Nice. <laughs> good, good. We have, we have, yes. All right, so there's another character uh, we want to talk about, not necessarily episode seven. We got to talk about Meacham. We got to talk about yeah. what's going on with Meacham. I mean, Meacham, he's, he is their, uh, he's their secret service guy. Uh, and he's also, I feel like their sexual partner. Gotta uh, be. Friend, you know what I'm saying? He's everything to them. <laughs> tell, tell, I mean, what, what was it like when you, I mean, how did that, how did that come about? 
Well, the Underwoods are people with an appetite. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant they line. Need to be sated. And Meacham was a person that they know that they can trust. And Meacham is also a person who is intoxicated by and seduced by power. I didn't write the episode, but you know, in our conversations about it, I, you know, it's not like the Underwoods were planning for a month or like <laughs> two months that like they were gonna get into a threesome with Meacham. It was not, it wasn't there I don't know if there were it was machinations so much as a crime of opportunity and something that happened between mm-hmm. consenting adults while drinking that you know fulfilled certain appetites that they had as a couple. I've heard Kevin Spacey describe this moment as a threechum, which I like, <laughs> which I liked a lot. Threechum. It's a great hashtag. A great Isn't hashtag. it though? <laughs> I cannot believe that it took us this long to utter the name of Kevin Spacey in this conversation. <laughs> now, he is the only character that has the pleasure and or responsibility of breaking the fourth wall. And he will look directly into the camera and he will speak to an audience. When the money's coming your way, you don't ask any questions. But now it's clear. Lanigan's never been anything but a front. Do I tell the president? No. He'll wonder why I didn't know, which makes me look uninformed. Or he'll blame the messenger for involving him, which makes me look careless. No, it's a trap. I must keep this to myself. It's really all about understanding his perspective on what is going on, not necessarily accurately telling you exactly what is going on. And in that way, it's very Shakespearean which is appropriate because Kevin Spacey is doing all this Shakespeare with Richard III, the movie that he's got out right now. Sure, and, and this and is a very do. long and rich tradition. Yeah, we, we talk about Richard III all the time in the room. And of course, we talk about Macbeth as well because <laughs> Claire's character is, is, is very Lady Macbeth. is <laughs> um, definitely drawing heavily from Shakespeare because the great thing about the director dress is it makes you a co-conspirator. Yes. You know, instead of watching bad people do bad things, you are in the conspiracy with the bad people. Well, that's, well, that's, that's amazing. BK, we're going to let you go. Thank you for, uh, for allocating this time, and uh, I hope you, we're going to release you to your great writing and maybe some whiskey sipping uh, later. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. My pleasure. No Thank problem. you, Bill. We appreciate it. Special thanks to Billy for chatting with us. Special thanks to Bo Willimon for his creativity and for hiring Mr. Kennedy. Damn good move on your part. Special thanks to Netflix for approving this interview. To learn more about Mr. Bill Kennedy and his own projects, follow him on Twitter at TheBillyKennedy. Making the pen drip is his business, and business is good. We certainly end this episode on a sad note because our amazing intern, Marquise Goodwin, is leaving us. Mr. Goodwin is a graduating senior at the University of Maryland College Park, where he's a broadcast journalism major. He also was our first intern on MADCAP, and we are thankful for his work ethic, creativity, sense of humor, and most importantly, his tolerance of Dan, Afim, and I. He can also take the wheel. (laughs) Yes, he can. He's a very able driver. Be not surprised if you hear his name once again, since we do firmly believe that his discipline and creativity will one day make Marquise Goodwin a household name. Mr. Goodwin, you will be sorely missed, and we wish you nothing but the best. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, bring it to me. Bring your sweet loving, bring it all home to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know I 
Our new intern that we welcome into the fold is Drew Snedecki. Drew, we love you, but you got to work on your freestyle game, homie, because I slayed you up in the studio last night. Welcome to the team, nonetheless. Madcap is produced by Daniel Bloom, David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. Our intern is Marquise Goodwin, who is reading this message. Serving out his last day. Farewell, my sweet children.